I've been asked to do the last message on Ecclesiastes, so please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I have an exhortation for you this morning. But before I do, I want to invite you to come to a picnic between 4 and 7 this evening. It's not... It's not like any other picnic that's ever happened. There's actually four picnics going on simultaneously, depending on where you live. So how that works is if you live in the northeast side of town, about four to seven, a group of people from Crossroads who also lives in the northeast side of town will be at Grand Rapids Township Park. Go check it out. Bring your own food. There's like a nature walk thing there that you can do. It's really fun. If you live in the southeast side of town, other crossroads people from the southeast side of town will be going to Manhattan Park, which is like Cascade, East Beltline, Stone's Throw from Reed's Lake. You can go have a great time with everyone. If you live in the southwest side of town, Johnson Park is going to have a group of crossroads people there with signs and balloons. And there's actually a scenic drive at that uh, park. If you're into that Sunday drive kind of thing, you can enjoy that with your family. And if you're lucky enough to live on the west side or the northwest side, (laughs) we will all be at Richmond Park, just uh, west of Alpine on Richmond and Tamarack. And if you're a west sider, you know where it is. And so come out, BYOF, bring your own food, but if it's raining out, I know that there are some Yogi Berra picnickers out there. <laughs> and if you want to go picnic in the rain, you can, but assume it's canceled if it's not. I mean, plan B, go to the movies or something if it's in the rain. I'm sure there's four movie theaters. Yeah, never mind. Just figure that out. Picnic tonight, 4 to 7. Be an awesome chance to meet meet some people in your neighborhood that go to uh, this church. And so it's, it's hard sometimes on Sunday morning because we're all just in and out. So please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And at this time, let's just dedicate ourselves to the scriptures. I mean, they're so important to me. So precious. When I was in Jerusalem, there was a feast or a festival that's called Simchat Torah. And this festival is simply just to celebrate, that the, the Jews just celebrate that they have a Bible. It's not the celebration of the giving. No, that's a different one. That's Pentecost. It's just the fact that we have a Bible. So I went down there to the Western Wall that night to see what was going on. And there were hundreds upon hundreds of people just dancing around in circles, holding the Bible up in the, in the middle. So I got in and started dancing too. I thought, I can roll with that. I mean, I'm excited that I have a Bible too. And I asked somebody, like, what's the big deal with this holiday? And he said to me, where would I be without this? Where would my people be without this? And I remember just that feeling that I had when I asked myself the same question. Where would my life be if I didn't have this? So thankful for this. So please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 9. 
Actually, let's go to verse 8. He ends his sermon or his message with this. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, like the nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings that are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of the making of books, there is no end. And much study wears the body. The end of the matter is this. After all that has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. Please pray with me. Father, we do a lot of praying. (coughs) It's just because we need you. Where would we be without your word, Lord? Where would our lives be if you wouldn't speak to us and reveal yourself to us and reveal what life truly is to us through your word? On behalf of everybody, I just want to say thank you. Through your Holy Spirit, open up our hearts to be able to receive the truth from your word about life and how we're supposed to live and about who you are and who we're supposed to be in the light of who you are. Thank you for Ecclesiastes. Amen. You may have a seat or stand. (laughs) Whatever you want to do. After all that's been heard, we've had this full month to study Ecclesiastes and to dive into it together. And the end of the matter is this, to fear the Lord and obey him and keep his commandments. That's just something I just want to say. That's the whole point of this this book, to, to, to show you that that's the point of life, to fear God and to keep his commandments. We have discovered Ecclesiastes to be much more but no less than a wise, poetic, a wise and poetic exhortation of truth given to us by one shepherd, encouraging us to find life and meaning through obedience and through seeking the Lord. I hope that in the last few weeks you've grown closer to the Lord, not just in Ecclesiastes, but also in the book of Job. We've been having these books together, Job and Ecclesiastes. Because these past two months, we've been giving ourselves over to this idea of wisdom. (laughs) That the Lord has given us wisdom for our lives. While simultaneously, we've just been reading these books at face value and figuring out what they say. We've seen Job, a man who's lost everything and has, has nowhere to go but up in his struggles in life. And we've seen a man who wrote Ecclesiastes who says he's the king of Israel and he has everything that he could ever want and his struggles in life. And that's exactly what we found. If you're in this area of life or this area of life, it's complicated. It's, it's confusing. It's tricky. There are things that we need to f- wisdom for. 
Because I don't know if you know this, but the Bible doesn't give us a detailed tutorial about every action that we're supposed to act or do in life. That's nothing new. We're just supposed to try and be wise in the situation that we're in. I mean, there is no verse, to my knowledge, that says, when there's a giant that's uh, threatening your people, go down to a river, get five smooth stones, put one in your sling, and throw it at his face. Did David make the right choice? I think he did. I think he made the, the best and the wisest choice that he could make in the light of who God was to him. We need wisdom for these kinds of situations. I don't know if you're in that situation very often, but be wise if you are. Maybe a different difficulty would be... Think about 2 Kings chapter 5 with Elisha. Naaman gets healed from leprosy in the Jordan River. And then he asks Elisha, is it all right if I go to work and my boss makes me bow down to this idol and I just do it anyways even though I don't mean it? And Elisha says, do what you got to do. But then, not even that long later, there's these three Judahite uh, friends who are challenged to bow down to a golden statue by their king. Or else they're going to be thrown into a blazing hot kiln. And they say... I don't think God wants us bowing down to statues, so we're going to pass on that. Well, which is it? Should we do the Naaman thing, or should we do the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thing? We have a God who doesn't just leave us hanging and doesn't just give us, or he doesn't just give us every single specific thing that you're supposed to do with your life. Which shoe to put on first? Which one to tie first? What do you do if you don't have laces? What side of the bed should you get up on? What ventricle, no, what should you use for a toothbrush? He doesn't do that for us because he wants us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our souls, and with all of our mind. He wants us to use our minds to be wise and to make courageous choices in the light of who he is, just like people have been doing in this family for thousands of years. And Ecclesiastes... In this specific piece of wisdom literature, we've been challenged with, he's been asking us to square up to the futility of life. And challenged us with a challenge of acknowledging that your life is short. And at the end of this letter, at the end of this book, he, in the last verse, references a judge. Someone who's going to judge. And even though vanity of vanities has been this line that he keeps repeating throughout the book, vanity doesn't have the final word in this letter. It would if there was no judge. If there was no judge, just do whatever you want to do. Everybody's right. Just figure it out for yourself. But there is a judge. And he cares what we do. He wants us to make right choices. He has an eye on you. So we need to start asking questions like, am I doing the right thing? <laughs> am I living a wise life that the Lord would have me to live? And if you're like me and you struggle with 
the complexities of life in the light of there being a great divine judge, then Ecclesiastes was written for you. And so today I just want to remind you of the book of Ecclesiastes that we've been studying. I think that these final verses kind of do that. See, I want to remind you about what he said. I mean, what was his main argument that he labored over? I also want to celebrate how we can trust the main argument. And also, I want to beg you to take seriously the aim and the purpose of this letter. What did he say? How can we trust it? And what did he intend for us to do in the light of it? So verses 9 and 10. Besides being wise, the preacher taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. And uprightly he wrote words of truth. What did he say? Well, I'll tell you one thing. These verses lead me to believe that he planned what he said. This isn't just some ramblings of some old man who just is bitter and is regretful at the end of his life. He planned. He waited. He weighed things out. He discerned what to write. And he wrote them for a purpose. The poet Tom Wolfe said that the a book of Ecclesiastes to him is the highest flower of poetry, of eloquence, and of truth. And verse 10 says that he wrote words of delight, and he correctly wrote words of truth. There's a truth in this book. And the truth of the main argument of the book of Ecclesiastes is this. Life is short and you can waste it. There is a way for you to waste the life that you've been given on this earth. By far his favorite word to describe the futility of life is the word vanity. He says it like 38 times in this letter. It's a multi-purpose metaphor for just how quick life is and how things easily pass away. In Hebrew, it's the word havel. And it's describing like steam coming from that boiling pot in the morning when you're trying to make the French press. The steam is just here and it's gone. Just watch it, havel. It's vanity. And such is life. Our existence on this planet in the scope of things is just a vapor. And if you're not careful, your life, your vapor, could just be one big chase, chasing after things that you can't keep and wasting your life trying to hold on to things that won't last. He says it's like chasing the wind. You can never really get it. Some of the things that he highlights along the way in his life experience, he says... Chasing wisdom in and of itself. Chasing wisdom for happiness. It's havel. It's vanity. Because the more you know, the more you know. And the more you find out that this world is messed up and it's broken. You can't do anything about it. It's vanity to just chase happiness and wisdom and knowledge. He also says chasing after pleasure is vanity. Wine, 
women, money, building things like parks and houses and vineyards. He gets all of this gold and all of this silver and has all of these things to please him. But he really has nothing that can truly please him. He says that chasing after power is vanity. Because at the end of the day, the world is, there isn't enough power for one man to save the entire world. There will always be people who are suffering and hurting. And so you can't get enough power in order to help and to fix the life. So it's just vanity. It winds up making you selfish and self-centered. Lastly of all, chasing after life is vanity. Because we're all dying. The wine's always running out. The food's always rotting and our bodies are always getting older. We're destined to return to the dust from which we came. And over and over in this book, from chapter 1, he says, vanity of vanities, all the way to chapter 12 and verse 8, it's vanity. If you're just chasing after happiness in these things, you will waste your life on them. We can waste our lives on these things too. Media, we can waste our lives and we can waste our lives on work. We can waste our lives on Facebook. We can waste our lives on Netflix. We can waste our lives on trying to accumulate more and more money. For what? At the end of the day, we grow old and our eyes can't really see anymore and our ears can't really hear anymore and our life wasn't really lived. Have you been struggling to see the meaning and the value in your life? Nobody's in trouble. As you look back, have you been struggling with that question? Do I really matter? Am I really important? Is this really all for a reason? The main argument and the truth of Ecclesiastes that he's writing about is, is that if you are trying to seek satisfaction and happiness and meaning inside of all the things that you see here under the sun, you won't find it. And that's the truth. And to be honest, I may be the only one, but I think that that truth for me doesn't always fit into the heart that I have. That truth doesn't always, isn't always on my mind when I'm making decisions, or at least I like to pretend like it doesn't really apply to me. Sometimes what the Bible says just doesn't fit with the desires of my heart or what the world tells me that I need to have. But that's the thing about the truth. You can't change it. And our world is constantly trying to change this specific truth. That you can have happiness in things that you can see and things that you can get and experience. Generation after generation, we try and become so clever to twist that into somehow not meaning what the writer of Ecclesiastes says it means. Today, on a greater scale of things, truth actually doesn't exist to the world. It's, it's really, there is no truth anymore. And if there is truth, everything is true. You can't believe in one specific exclusive truth. 
What happens to us then is we become a generation that's so passive. Everything's meaningless. Apathetic and bored. We have all the opportunities in the world at our fingertips here in America. We don't want to do any of it. My generation is this thing called a quarter-life crisis where we know we can be whatever we want to be and do whatever we want to do, but we're scared to do one thing. And so we go through our 20s just paralyzed. We won't stand up for anything except for, like, maybe recycling. If you have a conviction or if you have a specific belief or if you believe in something like the Bible that says there is only one way to satisfaction and happiness, you become an outcast. You're intolerant. And this may be a little tangential, but I want to say this. You don't have to die passive. Pick up your cross and follow me doesn't necessarily mean close your mouth whenever there's a controversy around. You can be civil. Civility and passivity are not the same thing. You can't have a civil conversation about what you believe, what you have faith in, what you believe will help people without being rude and arrogant and prideful and without being completely passive and just letting all arguments go aside. You can enter in. You can have a message. Don't settle for passivity. Your life is too important for you to waste the opportunity for life to be proclaimed from your mouth. You can have a legacy of truth that can guide generations to come. You can live a life of integrity that challenges your children and their children. If you will stand up for the truth of the gospel... Your name will fade, but his name will be lifted high forever and ever. And it will, in the work of your life, will be shown to stand the test of time. That's the irony of this letter. I'm holding his work in my hand, even though it wasn't signed by anyone. It's not meaningless if I'm standing here reading it and feeling life from it. Your work can mean something. If you labor after it, and if you try hard, and if you seek wisdom, and if you weigh and discern, because no matter what generation you're a part of, you can't change the truth, which is why we still have Ecclesiastes. One plus one always equals two. Water is one hydrogen atom, two oxygen atoms every time. And Jesus came to save souls, to save sinners, and to tell you there is a way to life. He came like a, like a brilliant light shining into the darkness that says, follow me, there is a way. He came to set people free from the vanity and the futility of life that we can waste our lives on. The word of God is beckoning us this morning to not waste our lives and to live a life that counts. And so if there's anybody who's just tired of living a life that just feels meaningless, Jesus calls you this morning and says, if there's anyone who's thirsty, 
who's been drinking water that just makes him more thirsty. I have living water for you. If there's anyone who's just eating food that's making him more hungry and they're sick of it, I have bread of life for you that will make it so that you'll never be hungry again. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you true satisfaction if you receive me as the King and the Messiah of your life, the Savior of your heart. Ecclesiastes is a wise and poetic exhortation of truth that's been given by one shepherd to encourage us to live a life that matters through obedience and drawing near to God. It's an exhortation of truth. (coughs) How can we trust it? The second part here, verse 11 and 12. The words of the wise are like golds, like nails firmly fixed are collected sayings. They're all given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. For the making of books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. I used to think that my older brother made that verse up so that we didn't have to study. We were homeschooled as kids. He would, we would all do stuff like that. Anyways, um, you can trust the message of Ecclesiastes because this message was given to you by one shepherd. I find that verse, in, verse 11 very interesting. These were given by one shepherd. It's never come up in the, let, in the book before. It's always the preacher, the preacher, the preacher. Then all of a sudden, this was all given, it should say, by one preacher, by the same person. It takes time out of this to say, this was all given. The firmly fixed truth of this letter was given by one shepherd. So you can trust it. I think the shepherd is the Lord. Who gave these words to the writer of Ecclesiastes. Who put that in his heart. That that desire to be discerning. And to synthetically focused. Bring an intelligent argument. And write it down to lead generations to come. One shepherd. He says, my son. Beware of anything beyond these. My son. He may be the speaker of a community, but there's a father's heart behind this message and this truth. My son. Now maybe some of you have been reading this letter this month and reading Job last month and saying, wow, this stuff is really true. I know this. And maybe the wise people in this room are, I know that probably the wise people in this room think that they don't have anything to offer. If you're reading these words and you're looking back on your life and saying, wow, that's true for me. That's real. I know that. My generation needs you to tell us that. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but we haven't maybe made those mistakes yet. This is the heart of this letter. My son, listen to me. Life is the greatest teacher, and if you feel like right now 
You want to be a mentor to someone? I would encourage you to find somebody. Maybe come up here afterwards and say, I need to be mentoring somebody and telling them about how this is true and how to live their life. And if you don't have a mentor and you're young, let's get you a mentor and come up here. And maybe there will be two people that want to get connected after the service. Because like I said, my generation really needs to hear that there's something worth living for and there's something worth dying for and there's something that we can actually waste our lives on. So please, sorry about that tangent, pursue our generation, if you will. There's a greater biblical truth and exhortation behind this exhortation to not go beyond these words. Don't go beyond these words, he says. The reality is there are many things that we can listen to that are awesome right now. There are many things that we can also listen to that are terrible. Millions of books are printed every year. And there are some wolves in sheep's clothing out there that are trying to draw you away from this. Draw you away from the truth. That want to replace the wisdom that that is found in this book. Be careful not to go beyond these words. The big trick lately has been to write books about this book and ask these really big questions of the really big things in this book, but not give any answers. And so many people have gone astray because of that question that wasn't answered. But it could be answered if you would take this book seriously. You can find the answers to the biggest questions. You can find the meaning of life. You can find the author of life and the creator of all life. If not, you're just going to get burnt out trying to catch up with all of Don Carson's new books or, you know, the 50 that come out every year. Or you're just going to get burnt out on all of the topics and questions and debates and opinions by people who talk like me, guess what? I'm not the Bible. Every day I make a mistake about something. We need to to know what this says so that we can't go beyond what this says. I'll say more about that later. But I think easily, Easily you could begin to become a person that discerns what this book says if you would just give yourself to it one verse at a time. Lately I've been thinking a lot about the difference between memorizing information and knowing something by heart. This has always been something in my life. I mean, as a child, I definitely had new movies by heart. I mean... Top Gun, Dumb and Dumber, I could, do, I could do every line of these, Back to the Future, or A Few Good Men. And my mom would always feel like, how do you know what they're about to say without going through and studying the script? You could just apply yourself to the scriptures and know all of that. And I'd be like, Mom, literally, two verses in, I am yawning myself to death in this. And I am one of those yawners where my eyes just get so full of water, it's done. I can't read anymore. So my mom would 
would write me songs about Bible verses. And that was great. We'd sing them to each other. They have videos of us doing that as kids. Look at all the songs we got. But the problem is, then I'd be reciting verses to people, like at the store, in song form. And it's kind of embarrassing, you know. Colossians 3, 23. And it's just like this, I can't do that. It's not working. And it's forced. I mean, what is it? That happens in our hearts when we hear these lines like, you can't handle the truth. What, what is it in our hearts that just wells up with this feeling and this emotion, you know, when you hear words like, my precious, they stole it from us and we want it back. All of a sudden you're taken somewhere. This is the difference between memorizing something and knowing something by heart. I'm not, never mind about that. Knowing something by heart is like this holistic, emotional attachment to something unforgettable. Something epic and unforgettable, right? Knowing something by heart is like throwing a baseball in a baseball game. You're not thinking about mechanics and what to do right. You just know what to do and you do it. Knowing something by heart is like driving home to your childhood house that you haven't been to in years. But you just still know how the road feels and how you're supposed to get there. Knowing something by heart is like that feeling that you have where you know Every single word, like where every word is in your favorite book, where that line is in your favorite book that just really popped out at you, you just know where it is because you've read it so many times. Knowing something by heart is something that we all can do, and it's probably the reason why John 3.16 is the most known verse. Not because so many people sat down and said, today I'm going to memorize this verse, but because you have this connection, this emotional connection, where the God of the universe said, this is who I am for you. This is who I will be for you. And you can have that with every verse and with every story in this Bible. You can find him. You know how I know? Because he promises that. He says it in places like through the prophet Jeremiah in 29 verse 13 when he says, Seek me and you'll find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And you can know him by heart without having this burden on your shoulders to somehow memorize all of these scripture lines and verses. But we have the capacity in order to be able to hide these things in our hearts so that when wolves come by, we're not fooling anyone. We know the words that were given to us by the shepherd. And it reminds me of this idea of just knowing Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or actually knowing the shepherd. And I don't want to be a guy at the end of my life that just knows Psalm 23. I want to know the shepherd. Don't know where I am in my notes, but that was... A moment for me. 
I guess what scares me out of all of this is that we all come to church every week and we hear information and we hear pontification from sermons and guys like me saying things for 45 minutes. But do you know the shepherd? It scares me to think that we don't know what is beyond this book and what is in this book sometimes. But the words of this book are like a well-driven nail. And there is a shepherd behind this book who is giving us the truth. Jesus comes out and says it in John chapter 10. I am a good shepherd. I will be a shepherd for you. And my sheep hear my voice. How do we hear the shepherd's voice? It's right here. And my sheep will be able to discern between what's here and what's not here. He also says that you do not obey because you're not my sheep. It's it's not the other way around. My sheep just know my voice and obey me. And it's not just you don't obey me to become my sheep. And I want to celebrate the fact that Ecclesiastes is a part of the entire whole of Scripture that was given to us by a good shepherd who loves us and wants us to know his voice and to be able to be a discerning people so that we don't go beyond it and become trapped. The shepherd leads us down the one path. He says, I am the only way to the Father. How would you know that all of these other ways are not the true ways to the Father if you didn't know the shepherd said that? I am the only way. I am the only truth and the only life. Ecclesiastes is is a wise and poetic exhortation of truth given by one shepherd to encourage us to live a life of meaning through obedience and trust of God. So lastly, what's the aim of this book? Why did he write this? Where is he encouraging us to go with our lives? And what is the meaning to life? Read 13 and 14. The end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. <clears throat> I don't want to elaborate on that verse. Not because I don't believe it, but because I just want you guys to just receive that and to take it home and to believe it. In Hebrew, the verse that says, This is the whole duty of man, really just says, This is the whole duty of man. <laughs> There's no trick there. This is what you're to do. <laughs> We never get verses like that. It's great. This is what you are to do. Fear God and keep his commands. If you are wondering, what am I going to do in life? This would be a good start. If your life has totally gone off the rails and you feel like you don't have any direction, this is a good compass. Can you say, I'm just trying to obey God? I would love to stand at the judgment Day next to you or stand in line or whatever we're going to be doing and you say to me, I'm not 100% sure that I made all the right decisions, but I am 100% sure that my heart was, was seeking to obey God 
and to keep his commandments. My heart was just trying to fear him and to keep his commandments, and so I'm good. But I would hate to stand at the end of, at the end of time and you say, I think I made all the right choices. And your heart, and your heart was wrong. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God. This is the most popular. I read somewhere this week that like over 300 times there is an exhortation to fear God in the Bible. Way more than to love God. Way more than to trust God or to have faith in God. To fear God. In the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And the way I look at fear God, this is helpful to me because some people skirt it and go into different directions. To fear God to me is like going to the Grand Canyon. I mean, there is two elements to the Grand Canyon for me. I went to the South Rim one time. I got lost. Everyone thought I died. And it's a long story I'm not going to share. But when you're standing there, there is a reverence and an awe of just, holy cow, this is a very big hole here. (laughs) I've never seen something so big and magnificent than this. Wow. Wow. That's one of those wow moments, right? And there's also a sign right when you walk into the South Rim hike area that says, most people die within 50 feet of falling over the edge. It doesn't say (laughs) some people die when they fall over the edge. It says you will die if you fall over the edge. As a matter of fact, within 50 feet, most people die. So just have a good day. Be careful. There's, (laughs) There's no fence. There's no rope. There's just that sign that says fear falling there. And I did. I walked right on the edge, and I thought so many times, man, I will die if I fall down here. I'm scared to do it, so I'm not going to jump over that crack, or I'm not going to climb up that thing. I'm, I'm afraid of that, and I honor and respect this place because it's magnificent, and wow. The Bible says this too. Remember verses like Isaiah 66, verse 2. The Lord says, the one that I will look upon is the one who is humble and contrite, the one who trembles at my word. I'm sure you all know Isaiah, uh, Psalm 46. It talks about how great the Lord is and how that's comforting and a shelter to us. It says, be still and know that I am the Lord and hear my voice that speaks and makes the nations tremble. Oswald Chambers puts it like this. The remarkable thing about fearing God is when you fear God, you don't fear anything else. But if you don't fear God, you fear everything else. Not that far from what Jesus said. Fear not what man can destroy your just body. But fear the one who can destroy your soul and cast you into hell. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God comes first. Because obedience really can't come, after, can't come before that. Know who he is. And then obey in the light of who he is. It's that simple. You see, God looks at you. He doesn't see a robot. 
He doesn't see race or social status or gender, really. He sees children. He sees people who can be his disciples. He sees someone that he can work with. And he wants you to just try and be like him. Which is why he doesn't leave it up to a mystery of how we're supposed to live our life. And he does give us verses that say it's that simple. Fear God and obey him. If you were starting to think that you don't have the equipment necessary to do that, 2 Peter verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3. He has given us all that we need to live a life of godliness through the knowledge of the one who has called us according to his glory and his goodness. You have all that you need to be able to live this life that he's calling you to live that matters, that isn't wasted. If some of you are afraid that you don't know what his commands are in order to obey him. Well, first, I want to challenge you this morning, read the Bible. Stop reading all those other books. Stop watching all those Netflix shows and try and read the Bible. Walk up to a stranger here or at the picnic later that you guys are going to and ask them, please be my partner in reading the Bible. Hold me accountable to do this Plan this 365-day plan or this 180-day plan of reading through the Bible so that I can know what it is that he requires of me. And you will find verses like Micah 6, 8 that say, you know what is good, oh man, what the Lord requires of you. To act righteously, to walk humbly, and to love kindness before the Lord. You will find these verses that will challenge you, that will feed you, that will lead your life. They will shepherd you. They will encourage you to make choices like the people in our family of faith that have made these brilliant and brave choices. This is what reading the Bible will do. It will draw you up into a new brave place in life. As I said before, Jeremiah 29, 13 says the same thing as James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to the Lord, and he will draw near to you. But just for now, know that Jesus sums this all up too. When he says, the law and the prophets can be summed up by loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Just start there. Because today we leave Ecclesiastes and he leaves us with this choice. You can waste your life. And you can live a life of vanity. That's meaningless and empty. And will not satisfy you or leave you happy with any joy. Or you can choose to find meaning and satisfaction in life by pursuing, by pursuing God and loving him with everything that you have. So bow your heads with me and think about this choice. The day is coming when the judge, when the judge of all of our, our deeds, evil or righteous, will come. Think about that. There will be many 
who stand at the gate and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I fill my heart and head with the information about what to do? Didn't I cast out demons in your name and prophesy in your name? Lord, he said, you didn't fool anyone with all your opportunity, with all of your choices, with all of the, the resources at your fingertips, with the truth in your hand and spoken to you every week. You missed the point. I never knew you. You can't trick me because I see, I see your heart and I know I am the judge of whether or not you truly, you truly have received me or not. Jesus wants you to know that your life has meaning and value so much so that he left where he was to to wrap himself in this skin and say, this is how valuable you are. Jesus came into the haze and the fog of this vain life and said, I can find God through here if you just follow me. You have no idea how much I care about you finding the truth. You have no idea how much I care about you having a life that matters. How precious you are. With his death, he says to us, you, value, you are so valuable. You matter so much to me that I will pay with my life, for all of your debts, for all of your sins. So that when the judge comes, all they're going to see is a pure and spotless bride that's washed in my blood. Will you receive his righteousness and love him with all of your heart? Because to love him is to obey him. Jesus, we give our hearts to you. Keep encouraging us. For those of us who haven't fully given our hearts and our minds and our strength to you, keep teaching us that this is is the only way to satisfaction and to life. I believe that you came to rescue my heart. Thank you.